Welcome to the First World Philippines Podcast. How do you fix a problem like the Philippines? How can you identify the root causes, the real root causes of the social and economic injustice we see here in the Philippines? And who can solve these problems? And what are the solutions, the next steps to make the Philippines a first world country in our lifetime? Now, this is such a heavy interview. Friends, this may be one of our best ever episodes. I have honored and privileged to introduce you Jonathan Hepner, author, entrepreneur, spiritual leader, one of the most inspiring men that I have witnessed, um, listened to, been a student of in almost five years now. I have been blessed to, to listen to Jonathan, to allow him to mentor me, to allow him to feed me uh, with so much information. And today, in this episode, we deep dive into Filipino culture, into the root causes of the issues, into the social injustice, into a lot of issues that I think many Filipinos and foreigners who love this country will absolutely must listen to, and perhaps multiple times. This, this is one of these episodes. We go really deep, and Jonathan has just got away with the, the English language. He's Canadian, uh, born in Canada, but has spent an enormous amount of time a total of like 18 years, something like that, in the Philippines. So he is not a flyby tourist. <laughs> he knows this country, and uh, this country has made a massive impression on him. He has a massive heart for the Filipino people, and I couldn't think... I'm honoured that he and I made time to sit down and record this amazing two-part series, uh, two-part episodes talking about Filipino culture. Okay, let's dive straight in. I know you're going to love this, guys. Excited for you to listen to the full benefits of this. It's going to be so amazing. Jonathan. Yes. Uh, good morning. Oh, no. Thank you. So, good afternoon. Yes. So, Jonathan, I've, I've been listening to you for four to five years. And I would say you have been one of my biggest influences in my work here. I don't know if... I think this is the first time I'm telling them. Yeah, like, regardless of me? The Wait a second. We got the right guy here, are you yeah. sure? I've been greatly challenged by uh, your words and how you package your messages. Um, spiritually, your, your calling to go into darkness. Yeah. I have never been challenged so much by one person and your your mastery of your different tones of voice which you my friends you're going to see very shortly uh, I'm, so, I'm so I'm struggling once again to express my gratitude yeah. to how much I have benefited as a student as a as a follower mm. and now you come to the end of your chapter here in the Philippines yes so Jonathan has been here for 18 years yes. on and off with his family he's leaving for a new chapter in Eastern Europe Eastern, uh, the Asian, Near East, the so Near Greece East. slash Turkey. Greece slash Turkey. Yeah. First of all, how do you feel making this move chapter? 
<laughs> I was going to start crying, but I was like, shoot, I can't get the tears. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to, I just want to, no, um, want to thank my parents. And I, no, we're supremely excited. We, anytime we have found, so in our lives, so we've been married just about 25 years. Anytime we've come to the end of seasons, there's a sort of a marriage of grief and joy because grief because we will miss the connections and the opportunities and the relationships of the locale that we're in. But we've always been wired for where is nobody else going? How can we get there? Well, and so that was we just sort of at the, the last couple of years in the Philippines, we just have been so excited about partners that we have doing the similar things that we're doing we were both feeling like we're we're being redundant here we we don't need to be here anymore there's lots of incredible things happening here let's go somewhere where nothing is happening and uh change the world wow and your time in the philippines how would you hmm, can i go back 18 years because i I really want our our friends who are watching this to see your own personal journey in 18 years since you arrived so what age were you when you came to the Philippines? I just turned 12. Wow. Yeah. 12 years old. Yes. And you were with your parents at the time? Yeah. My, so my parents m- moved from uh, Western Canada. Uh, and they pretty much immediately, my mom started a foundation called Gentle Hands. Okay. And what they were at the time, um, this was just post-Marcos, Um, in the midst of, you know, the nine insurrections and rebellions that was all in there, the people who suffered the most were the poor, of course, um, in all of that upheaval. And so my mom, who was a trained nurse, in a village near where we lived in Quezon City, she noticed that they, that the poor had no access or education to pre, in regards to prenatal care. And so um, it was a throwback to the Middle Ages. People were still using, uh, you know, mythology as a way of, uh, and, and, you know, straight out rich witchcraft as a way of healthcare, yeah. you know. And so she started a training center, sort of an education center for poor women who had no access. They couldn't afford the, the, provincial, health, the, the provincial hospitals or, you know, they couldn't get access to education. So in our home, she started you know, shipping in busloads of pregnant women, which <clears throat> as a teenager, this is not cool, okay? <laughs> to be in a house jammed full of pregnant women. So I grew up, my household chores were holding babies and changing diapers. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't cool. It sounds cool, it sucked, okay? <laughs> but that was sort of our entrance into sort of, sort of the social issues of, the Philippines and South Asia was that sort of foray into an area that nobody was dealing with. So my mom and and two other women, uh, they all started these uh, sort of education and birthing centers in Quezon City, Antipolo, and uh, Cainta. And so they did that for, and so that was all of our experience. I was just a teenager, so I'm in school, going to high school. But they did that for... um, about 10 years, about a decade. I mean, and they weren't called birthing centers, they were called lying-in clinics, right? That was sort of the language for them. But what we saw happen was a shift in the way that hospitals provided care for uh, 
the poor. I mean, wasn't it wasn't dramatic in terms of how we think of drama, but it was just a little bit of improvement in access was dramatic enough that not only uh, did the hospitals, were the hospitals improving the care available to the poor, but there were tons of these lying in clinics opening up. So there was just, I mean, this is sort of our genetic code. I mean, my mom just saw, hey, we're not needed anymore. We don't need to keep doing this because there's lots of this happening now. So it transitioned. So how long, sorry, just before you go into yeah. transition, how many years was? About a decade. Wow, okay. Yeah, about a decade did that. Okay. They did that. They, they, they started transitioning. My sister and her husband moved here and they transitioned it to sort of a rescue and rehabilitation center. So instead of providing midwives and prenatal care, it became uh, how do we provide a place to care for those who are being abused and abandoned? Mm. So it's, it wasn't an orphanage, but it was specifically in concert with local police and local government. When there was a crisis situation of abuse, uh, they would call gentle hands and gentle hands would go in and intervene, yep. rescue the children, provide a sort of a map of care mm -hmm. and rehabilitation. And it turned into, I mean, gentle hands today, they're the number two adoption agency in the country. Wow. Right, just international adoptions and local adoptions. Yeah. So that was sort of the trajectory of that part of our lives. Yeah. So, yeah. So I have a broad question, but I'm, I'm kind of building up to it. Yeah. But I, I'll give you a heads up what the question is rather than just throw it at you <laughs> and expect you to answer. But I'm really curious the mindset of a 12-year-old of a and how Filipino culture influenced that mindset. So you're, is it for 12 years before that in Western Canada? Yeah, Canadian, okay, yeah, so fully, all Canadian. 100% Canadian before that, then moved into the Philippines at a sensitive time in yeah. their, their journey, their history as a country, a lot of uh, political instability at that time. Yeah. I'm just very curious, and of course, to see your family in the front lines taking on work that, as you mentioned earlier, very few people wanted to volunteer to do yeah. or to... I'm just curious, how did your work over the, and you can go as back, go as, even to today, you can yeah, go yeah, from yeah. 18 years to today. How was Philip, the, the broad question that you can uh, allow you to take this is, how has Filipino culture changed you? And you can answer that both from the positives <clears> and, and, and the, the negatives. negatives. Uh, well, moving here when we did, so, that's sort of the height of the US military base's presence in the Philippines. Okay. And so most, my, of my teenage experience in the Philippines uh, was difficult. Um, just because of, I mean, just because of where the Philippines was in terms of its trajectory of development and understanding of the world. And so, like my mom would take us to Divisoria and um, I would walk away with bruised arms, just pinch, 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 pinch. And I had, you can't tell now, but I had long white blonde hair and uh, so I was, stop laughing. Why so, Because <laughs> I was white. Okay. And so, so for- What is the, was pinching symbolic? Touching the white skin, touching the, they would rub my hair to see, because no, I mean, there were still so many people who had never seen a white person in, in, in real life. Okay. And so when we were in poor areas, I, it became a, a, I hated it, hated it. Because I mean, I'd get, I'd get all, we'd get all the attention. Me and my, you know, siblings, um, walking down the street. It's hey Joe. Um, it's, it's all the stuff which, 
as adults, we find comical and, you know, even intriguing. But as a child, it was torture. Yeah. It was just torture. And there was really no outlet for that because it's this interesting mix of... Uh, part of what makes Filipino culture so interesting is its good-naturedness. Yeah. So everything's done with a smile and a giggle and a high-five and a, a, in barcada form, but for the individual on the receiving end of that, uh, I hated it. Okay. So it, it shaped, um, I mean, and this is, this is an interesting point of context. Part of what it did for me and so many of my sort of international friends who grew up here is we sort of fell into this category of what they call third culture kids. And what a third culture kid is, is someone who is shaped outside of their home culture in such a way that they no longer feel at home in their home culture, but they're not at home in their adopted culture. So they're always the outsider. And so it's not like I can go into anywhere, especially when I was a teenager in the late 80s, early 90s, and blend in. It, just, it, does, it never happened. So there was always somebody staring. Always, always, always. And what's interesting about Filipino culture is the, the prolonged eye contact, the you know, in-your-face kind of sort of interaction. And for, you know, for me, an outsider who didn't really want that, it was, I mean... I don't know that I handled it well all the time. Yeah. Sometimes it was, I'm not going anywhere. I don't want to go anywhere. And then other times it was over-the-top rebellion where we intentionally flaunted ourselves for over-the-top attention, which, uh, is this a PG thing? No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uncensored, uncensored. Uncensored version. Uh, no, my wife might listen to this. Um, no, I'm just kidding. There was nothing bad, babe, I promise. Um, so we did... So it vacillated between loving it and hating it, um, enjoying it, longing for the day when we could get out, when we could get out of here. Um, now, being Canadians, uh, and even my Commonwealth friends, so people from other uh, countries like England and Australia and New Zealand and stuff like that, we handle it very different than our American friends. Because, and, and some of that is a culture conversation because some of what makes some Americans Americans is sort of that innate bravado, that innate um, bigness of culture, right? And for us Commonwealthers, we're much more, um, I don't want to say reserved because that sort of reflects on personality and that's not what I mean. It's a much more sort of give and take, we won't push our way on you, that kind of thing. And so my American friends, they, they loved it, but we are all, most of us Commonwealthers, we sort of wanted to just disappear. Just didn't want to be, didn't want to be seen. Which sort of set the stage for sort of our process of when I became an adult and made the decision after I got married to move back here, how we reapproached the culture was very different because I'd had a childhood experience and then we came back. So it's 10 years in the, just to get the, the timeline, 10 yeah. years in the childhood? Well, so I was here from 87 to 92. Okay. I went back to, I went, did university in the States okay. and then lived in Canada for a couple of years, met my wife, and then we moved back here in the um, spring, so June, I mean, July, January of 1996. Okay, wow. Right. So we came back and then we lived here. We were here till uh, late 2001. 
Okay. Moved back to Canada again, was in Canada for 10 years, and then came back again in January of 2011. So just two, three, for me, it was three solid chunks of time. Yeah. But fascinatingly enough, at very, very unique cultural times in the Philippines, they were yeah. all vastly different in the way that even, even in sort of the Filipino awareness of, uh, of, of itself yeah. as a culture. So let's talk about that different perspectives that you got in the, those three different visits. So obviously, the first had very first experience had a huge impact because you, you being a child yeah well a young man at that, at that age I was a child second and third I was time. a child okay. I still am a child in lots of ways but <laughs> you come back the second and third time how did your how do your you mentioned your approach changed yeah are you talking about your approach to interacting with the culture or engaging with Filipinos how I, I think all of the above okay. so I mean 1987 88 80, 89 is is a very different Philippines than 96, 97, 98. Yeah. Just economically, sort of uh, the mass, the mass of cultures of access and interaction with the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, just in that that short period of time is such, it's a radically different place. Uh, and then you, I mean, you multiply that exponentially over the next decade. So when we came back, you know, 2011. I mean, every, the landscape changed so quickly. Uh, and, and lots of that has to do with just sort of um, the speed at which the economy evolved um, changed the interaction of the Philippines with the world. But I'm not sure, and, and this, is, this is an interesting piece of con like conversation point is I'm not sure that the culture kept pace okay so there was a so there's an economic and intelligent quotient that just exploded warp speed yeah. over those 25 30 years but there's still and that's sort of the development of culture when you study you know when you do when you study anthropology or sociology is there there's a self-awareness and sort of a culture coming of age and you just see that sort of coming to bear now in the Philippines where there's a there's there's a self-critique that's just beginning to be part of sort of social conversation uh, in the Philippines and it's what's interesting and 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 I you know we can prognosticate about this but it's the 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 economy and the and, and the way sort of financially and economically and skills and availability the way Philippines and and, and Filipinos have interacted with the world um, has been at such different speeds such 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 a different pace that there's I I think there's I mean this is just my opinion it's left it's left large gaps in terms of how do I how do we bring to bear the abilities, the giftings, the talents, the insights, the, the uniqueness of Filipino culture? How do you bring that to bear on the Philippines? I think what, what what's happened is the gaps have been created. And so that's why, I mean, we joke about this all the time that every Filipino wants to go to heaven and the heaven just happens to be called the United States of America, right? Everybody wants to make the big jump and get out of here. Um, I mean, that was the reality for a lot of years. Let's just, I mean, it's why the number one export is middle management, right? Just people, you know, OFWs, moving, 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 trying to make money somewhere else and you send the money home. 
I don't think that was a product necessarily of an economic requirement. I, th I don't think only that. I think lots of it also has to do with the glorification of a sense of who we're not. Okay. Right? The influence of the Americans over the last century, their, their presence and their treatment of the Filipinos and Filipino government and Filipino leadership and Filipino intelligence. I mean, there is, there's so much to be unpacked. The ripple effects of the way um, the Philippines has been treated for the last century. That is just now being, in the last decade, has, has, that, has that become a point of conversation in higher education circles of, what does this mean? How, how do we, I mean, colonialism is something that everybody throws around, but what does that mean on an individual level and how I see the world? Like, what does it mean to be a product of a, of a colonial paradigm that shapes everything I think, listen to, see, want to dress like, change my skin tone to be, I mean, it influences our entire lens of seeing the world. And that's, to me, it's, it's such a crucial conversation that it needs to be had at every level of culture. How do we, how do we diagnose it, the implications of how we see ourselves and how we've glorified another culture? And what does that mean for us? And how does that influence the way we, we treat the world in which we live? I mean, if you want me to start ranting, I mean, this is why Metro Manila is the way it is, right? This is, I, get, I, when I, I mean, anybody listening to this will be able to relate, relate to this. You, you fly out of Manila, you get to any other international airport, and the announcement comes on that there is another flight boarding, and you go with the same people you flew with, and everybody can queue on command. You turn that plane around and come back to flying into Manila, and everybody loses all sense of the ability to queue. Nobody can line up anymore. Now it's just mad rush to the airplane. Okay, so if we just, if we take that as sort of a diagnostic opportunity and we think about, so it's the same people, they different, environment. different environment. They can line up in Vancouver, but they can't line up in Hong Kong? Yeah, well, in Hong Kong, coming into Manila, because they can line up in Vancouver going to Hong Kong, but once we're flying into Manila, it's chaos. Those people are not, they don't lack intelligence, they don't lack gifting, they don't lack insight, they don't act, lack reflective ability, they don't lack any of the necessary tools to be um, influencers and contributors to a... Uh, a culture or a society that is profitable and, and healthy and robust and all the things that we love. It seems that there is a self-opinion about the home country that negates the necessity for all the things that are recognized to work and make other societies profitable and robust. Like a self-defeating... Yeah. Right? So this morning I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving here. And I was thinking to myself, I should list all of the infractions. Everybody knows there's no cops out on Sunday morning. So because there's no cops out, the rules don't count. They're irrelevant. Right? This, is a, this, this would be a self, this would be sort of a self-awareness thing. If the cops are out, if you can see a cop, everybody obeys the rules. Right? So the, so the attitude is, if someone's there to enforce the rule, I'll obey it. But if someone's not there, I don't have to obey it. Yeah. Right? And so for me, as a sort of a, a social reflector, 
I think about th on the million different ways that impacts the way everything runs. The only way to get something to run the way we want to run it is to have enough people to enforce the rules. So what that tells you is it's not a value system. Right? Yeah. So you've got this you've got this basin of gifts and abilities and ingenuity and creativity. And I mean the Philippines is off the charts on all that stuff. Just incredible people. I mean they're the they're the most adaptable culture on the planet. Just mind blowing. And yet it seems on so many levels, home is a trash bin. We export all of the wonderful things of who we are, and we don't care about where we came from. What breaks your heart about the Philippines? Wasted potential. Can you expand on that? What, in what areas is it? I would live in Manila. Um, in I would, I would, I would love this city like I love so many other cities. But for how hard it is to live here, right? How hard, like I think of all the people I'd love to see every week. I don't want to leave my house. I want to stay. I don't want to see anybody else in a vehicle because it's going to take me. I mean, so from from my house to where we are today is 13.6 kilometers. At 2.30 in the morning, that's a 15-minute drive. On a Sunday morning, it's 30 minutes. Every other day, it's pushing two hours. Yeah. It's like I'd rather eat a gun. <laughs> I mean, sorry, sorry, PG, PG. Yeah. I, I would, I just, it's just everything becomes so hard to do. So you think of all the opportunities and potential and things that could happen in this city and the, the resources and giftings and abilities and things you want, people you want to get together and projects you want to do. But it's like, if I can get one thing done in a day, I'm winning, right? If I went to the grocery store and got home and didn't kill anybody, yes, I won today and I did nothing of value, right? And so that's what grieves me about so much of what's here is the optimist side of me looks at the beauty and the, and the people that I know and the incredible gifts and, and ingenuity and creativity and how most people, it's like, like they're doing a, back in the day when I got my first car, we used to do brake stands lots where you pull the emergency brake, you step on the brake and then you just, you hit the gas pedal. So your back tires are just going, whoa, smoke show. And it feels like so much of what the Philippines lives in is the pollution of Metro Manila is a smoke show. It's somebody's got their pedal, their pedal to the metal, but everybody's got the brakes on because we just can't get anywhere. We can't do the things that everybody knows we should be doing because of the brakes. And the brakes, I mean, that's a metaphor that can be unpacked in so many levels. It could be the political system, the, the, the I mean, they do the massive bay cleanup or they drag the Pasig River and nobody deals with the industrial pollution. So it's so, so we're so happy. We cleaned it all up. We cleaned it all up. But we didn't deal with the reason why it's dirty. The inputs. Yeah, we, we didn't actually. And it's not that we don't know. It's not that it's not that we need to bring in a foreign intelligent person to die. Everybody knows. But it's just it's this self perpetuating frustration where we could be. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you've ever done the Carlos Celdran tour in Old Manila. Yeah, I've done a similar tour. Okay, so one of the things that he talks about is, you know, in the, 
in the, in the early part of the 20th century, Manila was the pearl of the Orient. It was, it was the magic of the South Pacific. It was everything. And post-World War II, she, she never recovered her sense of self. Right, and so I reflect on all those, I mean, all those sort of shotgun pieces of reflection and I just think we live in this, we live in this reality that is loaded with beauty and potential. And in equal measure, frustration and disillusionment. So you've got a young generation that's growing up full of talented, gifted um, leaders who have access to a world of information via the internet and via, I mean, I mean, this is a major port city, so there's lots of people come through, lots of education available, and yet there's no mechanism to bring all of those things to bear because, because the way we have allowed the sort of the structure of power to remain in our country, it'll, it only ever, it, it never actually resolves the, the foundational underlying issues. And so this, trans, this transitions, sorry if I'm ranting here, sorry everybody, I'm, I'm just ranting. No, this will be a part two podcast. <laughs> <laughs> two parts. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if we can shoot for four parts today. Um, this, I think, is what lends to sort of the glorification of whiteness. Okay. Okay. So the frustration gives birth to a longing to be something other than we are. See, look what they're doing. See, look what's, what's there. See, look what, they, what, what they've done. And without the, the tools, the ability, the know-how to actually diagnose and, and the power to change what's here, we just dream of what we could be. But we will never be. We abandon actually what makes us wonderful in our identity and our core and, and the magic of what's been given to us as Filipinos and we, we dream of what it's like to be an American or a Canadian and, and so we, and you see it happen all over the world. You, you, little pods, barcadas of Filipinos that set up and reproduce the beauty of the Philippines in another culture. But it's, I think it's, what, it's why the Filipino identity in foreign locations remains so incredibly intact. Because their representations of what the Philippines could be if, if you lived in a place that actually lets you be who you were. So they're profitable, they're, they're, they're promoted almost, I can't remember the, the percentage points or the, or the, the, the numbers, but the, the, the ratio of Filipinos who are, are advanced through middle management into management and into executive positions in Canada is astronomical compared to other cultures. So it, it speaks to the gifting, the ability, the intelligence, the work ethic, all that kind of stuff. And it shows you what happens when you're actually allowed to be who you are. I think that's why we end up, it's almost this self-demeaning defeatism that, screw it, it'll never change, it is what it is. Those of you who are stuck here, yeah, sucks to be you, we're gonna go here and do our thing over there and we'll send you a little cash every once in a while. And so it's, it's this almost depressing joy. We rejoice that you're there, but we're here. It feels like the hardest, in terms of the mentality, the hardest place to succeed for a Filipino, the mentality is in their own country. Oh, absolutely. That, that would be my, that would be my but opinion. It, I'm not saying it's true. Yeah. But the mentality is, so. Well, it might be true. Hmm. Like, I mean, I, I mean, we're, neither of us are economists. I don't know. Are you an economist? No. 
I mean, we could pretend and nobody would know the difference. So I'll, no, we're not gonna. <laughs> I mean, that might be, that might be the truth, but I would not be surprised. I mean, just in terms of, so, uh, like, a, my area of expertise is I'm a, I'm a spiritual leader. Like, I'm a pastor. I, I, I watch people. I reflect. I'm a student of culture and human relationship. And so these are just my observations. As I sit with people through the darkest times of their life, through the, the most incredible times of their life, watching them go through the different seasons of life, those would be my reflections as I just, just the longing uh, for, for people for, to, to go somewhere, to go somewhere else, right? To, to get to, to immigrate, to relocate, to take our family to a place where we're going to have a better life, right? And I don't judge that, but I just sort of distill that down and I think I didn't leave. So when I think about me as a Canadian, I didn't leave Canada because I was looking for better opportunities. Right? I left because I wanted to give my life to places that needed it. That's got to have an effect. It has to have a social, spiritual, psychological effect on how you feel about yourself when home is kind of embarrassing. It reflects directly on your identity. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to deep dive deeper in this. This yeah. is so, you know what? I've just realized uh, a lot of, let's call them Westerners, are yeah. afraid to have this conversation yeah. because of shame, um, especially Americans, their relationship with the Philippines being a former colonial. Yeah. Uh, most of the European powers. I guess an advantage here, my country and your country have never colonized anyone. It's because we're basically awesome. Yeah. That's basically what we are. So, <laughs> we can definitely uh, stay on the good, the good guy island for this observation. Yes. The Philippines has been great. The psychology, the sense of self-worth, sense of identity, sense of, of, I'll use some words that are misinterpreted, sense of nationalism, sense of patriotism. Yeah. Yeah. Love for self, love for our talents, love for our beauty, look, identity yeah. has been greatly damaged yeah. by the colonial periods. Yeah. And we've seen that in Africa, we've seen that in even my own country, yeah. uh, went through a, a form of colonialism. And uh, we've seen this in Central America, Southern America, other parts of uh, Asia, who have, it leaves an impact. Yeah. Many years, decades after the, the colonizers have physically left. Centuries. Centuries. Yeah, yeah. What is the way to for Filipinos to fall back in love with themselves, to go back, you use the word repent a lot, yeah. come home. Yeah. To, I'm not physically talking about, well, who knows, we could be physically talking about coming home. <laughs> yeah. A lot of our listeners are overseas Filipinos. Yeah. But to come back to what your true identity is, how, how can you, what's your advice for helping Filipino rediscover if society has twisted the national mindset to be something they're not or could never be. Super heavy loaded question, so you can break this down however you like. I think I think some of that um, 
is beginning to happen. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me, uh, I mean, this would be a great sort of microcosm of this conversation. So for a lot of years, the music industry here was this interesting um, expression of this conversation where, I mean, there's lots written of this. UP has done tons of research on this specific thing. Um, for, for a lot of years, the Philippines was sort of known as, it's, it's a karaoke culture, yeah. right? Mimickers, we, we're the best copiers we can take. I mean, you know, Arnel Pineda can step in and he sounds better. He's a better sounding Steve Perry than Steve Perry. I mean, I mean that's, that's the common joke, right? It's just like, oh my gosh, he's better than the original. But he's basically, I mean, it's just mimicry, right? And for so long, the music industry here was, was that. Filipino cover bands, there's nobody like Filipino cover band, right? So it was, the entire identity was in the mimicking of, I mean, and that's, to me, that's one of the predominant expressions of a colonial mentality, right? Is we, we try to be who our overlords are, right? We, we just try to mimic and copy. And what you've seen happen in the last uh, five or 10 years is the underground indie scene in the Philippines has found a real identity um, where, yes, it, it shares sort of the sound of global music, but it's uniquely Filipino. Now, and I've, I've sat in several conversations just sort of in, in terms of talking with people, excuse me, who are doing sort of uh, tribal music research. And so one of our friends, she was doing some research in some tribes in Mindanao and they were discovering tribes who, um, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, American missionaries showed up um, and under the guise of Christianity had basically communicated to the tribes that all of your instruments and your native, your native music expressions, they're, you know, demonic, satanic, burn them, get rid of them, and, you know, I'm being a little bit facetious, basically plays, you know, get your guitar and sing Kumbaya, and now you're gonna be, you're, now you're a Christian. And what this research group has discovered is that as they were sort of going back to these tribes and, re, and finding, you know, the one or two old people in the, in, in, remaining in the tribe who still remembered the ancient uh, instruments, they would, they would learn from those, those, those old members and they would begin to reteach these sort of these tribal expressions of, of culture and expression and music. And it completely changed sort of the, um, the, the life dynamic of the community. Something about the art expression of the core of the identity changed their self-perception. And so for me, when I reflect on, on sort of where the Philippines, at, the Philippines is at, I think lots about the film industry, the music industry, the art industry, um, and, and those communities, and how important they are to the Philippines. And so what I've seen happen over the last decade is there, is, there is a resurgence, a, a recovery of... A renaissance? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great word for it. Um, 
and asking those questions. What does it look like for us to be authentically Filipino without sort of carrying the caricature of, what are you saying, we need to go back to tribal expressions? Because uh, I don't think that's it. I think it's actually a, a, a reclaim, sort of a reclaiming of an ancient future. <laughs> Sounds like a book title. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's mine, it's copyrighted. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's almost a retro future where it's, there's elements of the uniqueness of expression that have to be reclaimed and rediscovered in order to paint the future. And I think that has to happen. Um, I think it has to happen in the arts and that has to grip the architecture. I think it has to grip entrepreneur, entrepreneurial ideas. And I think like the restaurant industry is founded here. You want to make a restaurant go in the Philippines? There has to be a unique expression that's deeply connected to Filipino food. Yeah. Okay, so to me, there's, an un there's a thread of truth in all of that mm. that has to sort of be mirrored in all the other things that we're doing. Mm. So, when, so when, when we're looking at industry that's driven by outside sort of entities, they're not gonna carry that same kind of, um, let's preserve or rediscover who we are mentality. It's gonna be purely for profit. And I sort of think that any, any culture, any country, a coming of age is, I mean, it's why we talk about cultural revolutions, right, it, a coming of age. So EDSA was supposed to be our revolution. But it, it, it never completed the cycle. It never, it, it changed power, but it didn't actually topple anything. It just removed, I mean, and that's a huge conversation that I don't think we have time to get into. But so we removed a figurehead and instituted a system, but nothing shifted. Yeah, the underlying issues. They still. all remained. So you had these moments where it's like, <gasps> Could it be? Could it be that the whole thing's going to shift? There's going to be an awakening. There's going to be a cultural flash. Woo. And what you ended up doing was they just patched it all together and the money just changed hands to where, where it was going. Yeah. And, and I think it's part of what I hope for in the Philippines is that as this younger generation, and, and I watch the online discourse and I watch some of the stuff that's coming out of some of the higher institutions of learning. There is some incredible debates going on right now just in terms of identity. Um, and I don't know if this is credit or curse, but Duterte is pro is, has pushed some of these issues because of his ostracizing personality and style and value system. Mm -hmm. It's forced people to define what is it that we value and who are we going to become? And, and for me, that's what I hope for for the Philippines, that it would, that there's going to be a, a leaning in of people who say, this is, this is my place. This is, these are my people. This is my home. And we want it to be profitable for all people. We want it to be a place of inspiration and beauty and wonder and magic. And we want to, we want to address the, and deal with the issues and the, and the darkness and the, the the corruption that eats away at the soul. Hey guys, and that is part one of our amazing interview with Jonathan Hefner. Please go to the next episode, check out part two. You will not want to miss it. Hey, this is Mike again. Thank you so much for listening to the First World Philippines podcast. It would mean so much to me if you left a review, if you share this podcast, somehow help us spread the word. We do this for free. 
always ask in return, please consider sharing this with your friends, people who love the Philippines, and people who want to become successful in this country. This is their podcast. Thank you so much. I'll see you in the next episode.